welcome to the Selfful Caregiver Podcast, Episode Zero. This is an opportunity for me to give you a background of who I am and why I have decided to do this podcast. My life has unfolded in a way that I never would have planned. You could not have told me uh, five years ago that this would be my life now as a full-time soul caregiver. So I just want to have you go back in time with me a bit just to see how I got here to this place of becoming a full-time selfful caregiver for my mom. And we'll get into selfulness and selfful and what it means and, and all of that good stuff. But I just wanted to kind of set the tone so you'll know who your who your host is and a little bit about me because I I mean I am a woman of many parts I must say and there's a lot but just for the sake of time we're just gonna go through how I got to this point of being a caregiver so 2018 was an amazing year for me until it wasn't I was in my last final year of serving as a Peace Corps community health volunteer. I was serving in a rural community called Mania Veni in Eswatini, formerly known as Swaziland. And I was there on a 27-month assignment. Um, actually, there's a lot going on in Swaziland at this time. They've been experienced dangerous civil unrest and protests across the country. And I just uh, solicit your prayers for the country because it's so near and dear to me. And I just pray that a, a change will come just globally. And um, while it's topsy-turvy now in Swaziland, I really experienced the best time of my life. The country is amazingly beautiful. And I know that my service was indeed a calling. I was called in June of 2016, and it was a it was a truly a spiritual journey because it was nothing that I had planned. I was actually at working at Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services as a, a as a um, training specialist. I formerly was the wellness coordinator. I was earning six figures, and I did have a desire to work overseas, but as an expat. Because when you work as an expat, you you get your salary. So I would continue to get my six-figure income, earn my six-figure income, but all of my cost of living expenses will be taken care of. In it, I mean, like that's that's great. Like I, I love um, that that thing, right? <laughs> so the first year, I already had in my mind what I was going to do. Like I already knew I had uh, the first year I was going to pay off my student loans. The second year, I was going to pay off my mortgage. And the subsequent years, I was going to save and save and save some more and then kind of figure out what I was going to do after that. But, you know, they say when we make plans, God laughs. He did not have that in mind for me. He, in his mind, he was like, you're going to volunteer. So say goodbye to that six-figure income. You're going to uh, give up everything and go. You're going to have no indoor plumbing. And my home has a has two full baths and a half bath. He said, you will be walking and taking public transport. I've had access to a car since I was 16. And I had just gotten my dream car a year prior to my departure. And he said, you will work in a community where 20% of the population is infected with HIV. And almost all of the population, especially the youth, have been affected by HIV, the HIV AIDS. It's a pandemic as well. Um, so while this wasn't my grand plan, my passion and desire to really work with people on the continent made this opportunity, even though it was not sexy, didn't sound sexy at all, a dream come true for me. So how I know that it was definitely divine is that the orchestration prior to my departure was was just amazing from getting a tenant that was ideal to sign a two-year lease to, at the time, my cousin's cousin was the ambassador um, to Swaziland. Uh, there, I mean, there were, there were so many I was able to, I met a, a former returned Peace Corps volunteer at an event and she 
really helped me decide on like kind of what to pack, what to look forward to. And I went with no expectations for sure. And I really didn't have expectations. I went with an open mind because I knew that I was called to serve. So all of these things leading up to my departure and leading up to me serving were just, you know, confirmation. Like, guys, like, you're on the right path. But when I got there, this is when I really, really knew. See, um, it's just a quick story. Volunteers are given Saswati, which is Swazi's, Swaziland's local language. They're given names by their host families. So one family hosts the volunteer for the three-month training period. is called pre-service training. And and then the other family hosts the volunteer for the two years of their service. So most volunteers are named by their training host family. And and more times, you know, more often than not, they keep their name with them throughout the service. But unlike most volunteers, I was given a name by each of my families. So the family that I stayed with, my training host family named me Silenzile which means we've been expecting you or waiting for you. And when I arrived to my permanent site three months later, my host family named me Fagile, which means you have arrived. So if you think about that, we have been expecting you and you have arrived in that order. You, you know, my families didn't know me or each other. It's no coincidence at all. It was truly divine. So that's how I got to the place of, you know, this is, I did, I did all the, the, the wonderful work I did in Aswatini for the two years that I was there. It was just so impactful and, and just so meaningful and life-changing. But now I'm going to bring you back. That was kind of like how I got here. So I'm going to bring you back to 2018. So 2018 started off with a bang, literally. Fireworks on a Tabetze homestead, courtesy of Babe. Babe was my hostead, and unfortunately, we lost him in the beginning of the year to the pandemic. But he he actually laid the foundation for 2018. In January, I was in the midst of co-planning for our inaugural Black Girls Global Exchange um, that was going to take place in March. BGGE is the acronym, and it's a global ambassador program that got birthed through me and my co-founder and friend and soror, Regina Sally. Um, you can learn more about BGGE at BlackGirlsGlobalExchange.org, BlackGirlsGlobalExchange.org, because there's so much to share, but we're talking about caregiving. So, um, But when I arrived in Swaziland, like I was saying that two years prior, I had no idea that God would use me to birth such a vision that was just so impactful and managed and, and, and magical as Black Girls Global Exchange. I mean, it really, truly was our baby. And so um, fast forward, we have a village of powerful young women and they're continuing to nurture the development. What? Three years later. So it, it, you know, our exchange with our girls meeting up, we had girls from, um, we had a cohort here in the States, a cohort in Swaziland that I was working with, and then a cohort in South Africa. Our girls actually met in real time and collaborated to produce these outstanding artistic activism pieces to tackle global issues that disproportionately affect us as Black girls and women. And through service, we did service activities. It was it was just amazing. So yes, check it out. Our videos, everything is there at Black Girls Global Exchange. But um, as that was January, I was also looking forward to my parents visiting me for my 45th birthday and celebrating me with my family, with my five Swazi family and friends that you know I had really cultivated these amazing relationships with on the continent. Unfortunately. My mother couldn't make it because she was in a terrible car accident and was ordered by the doctor not to travel. And so that's how her 2018 started off. But in God's divine wisdom, I was able to get home on emergency leave in late February to visit her because she had to have emergency surgery on her knee, which was risky because she was on Coumadin. So this came back. Th this all happened. 
after my day, I spent, my, my dad was able to come. I spent an amazing, we did two weeks together. It was so amazing. You know, we did the typical Joe Berg um, tourist attractions, apartheid museum, Nelson Mandela house. We actually were able to do three of our favorite pastimes. We went bowling. We did the amusement park, um, Gold Reef City, rode the roller coasters. We, um, what was the third thing we did that we, oh, we went to the movies <laughs> and um, we went to see Black Panther in 3D in the only movie theater in Swaziland. So we had this most incredible trip and he hung out with me and my family and he got to see how I lived and I had an incredible birthday celebration. And then the two weeks, which flew by, um, went so fast, but he was on his way back to LA and I was taking myself doing a solo trip for my 45th birthday to Mauritius, which is an um, African island off the Indian Ocean. Absolutely amazing and beautiful. I had layovers in the Seychelles. And so it was just so amazing. And, and, and while I was on that trip, I received a call that my mother had to have emergency surgery, which was risky. And so, um, again, as I mentioned, I came home on emergency leave, you know, made the call to Peace Corps. They made it happen. And so I was able to fly directly from vacation. So I flew from the Seychelles to home, well, to Joburg, to home. My bestie, Michelle, picked me up from the airport and dropped me off to Sinai Hospital where my mother was recovering from surgery. She was fine. But remember, I came from, uh, uh, I was on vacation and it was, it was sunny and tropical. And so when I came back to Baltimore in February, it was wintertime. So I had to call my tenant. I told you I had an ideal tenant. I called her and was like, Jennifer, can I come? I want to come and get some clothes. I said, but while I am there, do you mind if I take a bath? Because <laughs> remember, I had no indoor plumbing. And so I was taking baths in a little basin. And so I just wanted to soak in my clawfoot tub. And because she was so awesome, she said, yes. When I say I enjoyed that bath, I enjoyed that bath. The only thing that was different was her knee. But she was still my mother, the mother that I remembered when I left in 2016. And so we hung out. We had such an amazing time. We laughed. That's what we do. And we just had a good time. We got crabs. We just did all of the things that we do. And so the two weeks flew by and then I had to go back to Swaziland. I really, you know, it was one of those things. It was good to be home, but I was also, I was also looking forward to going back because we were planning, as I said, for our Black Girls Global Exchange. And um, it was just amazing. So March comes and we do our exchange, which again, that was, I mean, it was just awesome. Like. There are so many words that I could use to describe it, but I mean, nothing short of magical. And so um, Regina Tourette, one of my best friends, she and April, they're both chefs. They came over and they were able to um, do the cuisine for our big event that we had in partnership with the U.S. Embassy. Like everything was just so amazing. Then we took a trip to Mozambique just to decompress and, you know, reflect on the, all of the magic that we had just experienced. And then after March, everybody went home, but it was such an amazing, amazing event that, you know, that, that again, that just made 2018 just everything. April returned back from Mozambique and started planning the mental health awareness fair with our Swati ambassadors, BGG ambassadors. And I brought in Flowey. Flowey is a local Swazi artist. She is amazing. We actually share the same name for Gile. And she worked with the girls as their mentor to produce some um, songs. So that was in preparation for our Mental Health Awareness Fair, which was in May. Mental Health Awareness Month is May. And then uh, 
ended May with Bushfire. Bushfire is the largest international arts and music festival on the continent. And it was incredible. And I did that with Nongalunga, my friend, and she was the program manager for BGGE in Swaziland. And 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 just talk thinking about 18. Eight is the number of new beginnings. And so I feel like this year, that year, it was a new beginning. There were so many new things happening. And um, I had no idea that, and I'm getting up to that. I had no idea that it would be as new <laughs> as it is, like really a new normal. So fast forward, just again, just kind of wrapping up everything. This is my last year of service. And I was looking forward to my other best friend coming. Michelle came in June and we did um, a, a, um, a retreat, our own little retreat and stayed on Mabuda Farm. I mean, just everything was so beautiful. Like all of these things happening in 2018, my favorite people visiting me in my home, my Swazi home and, um, you know, to create new experiences with them and then I had a friend that came, one of my friends, Billy, from Hampton University, came to visit. His son is um, sings with the Boys Choir of D.C., and so they were performing in South Africa. And so we connected, and um, in June, I'm sorry, in July, my college besties, Tara and Kyla, came, and we did a, um, a trip. It was a nine-day trip, and we did a South African trip. We did Cape Town, the the the, the uh, wineries, Robins Island, like everything. And we uh, went skiing in Lesotho at Afriski, which is a ski resort on the continent that was phenomenal. And um, we just had such a good time. And so now that that's like all of 2018 and and how just enriching it was for me and just how beautiful it was for me to share my life in my space again as I mentioned with people that from from all walks of my life and and I mean the closest people my dad especially who had been um sick took care of him actually in 20. 14 and 2015. He's doing amazing now. He's doing very well. And so we're, we're now in August. And so I returned from my trip with my college besties on Wednesday, August 1st. August 2nd, on Thursday, I went to, no, August 2nd, I just kind of rested. But August 3rd, I went to the school um, where I volunteered and I volunteered actually was on a mission. So the school, the clinic and the church was all on a Nazarene mission. So I went around, it was on that Friday and I was, um, they did a little something for me. Like the kids wrote letters to me and, you know, they called me Auntie Fugile and, you know, it was just a, a, a beautiful thing. And, and the principal and staff, they were planning something for me on that the following week. So they're going to have a formal farewell for me that following week. And I was also planning um, a retreat for our cohort of girls, ambassadors from BGGE. We were planning a retreat for that following Saturday. And so it's Friday and and, um, Friday, August 3rd, 2018. And I am, you know, just preparing everything. And and when, in fact, going back to like all of my favorite people coming over, I was sending home, you know, bags and, and you know, just everything that I wanted to to um, go back that I knew I didn't want to carry with me. I wanted to travel light because I was at the end, like I say, at the end of my service and uh, typically volunteers do a close of year service. I mean, I'm sorry, close of service vacation. So I was planning my close of service vacation and I had already was working on all of that. I had actually already made the plan. So I was traveling to Egypt, Ghana, where I traced my ancestry. Well, my dad actually traced his and 
Um, our ancestry traces back to the Fonte people um, from Ghana. So I was planning on staying there and meeting my cousins and all of that. And then I was going to Senegal. And um, then after that, I was planning to travel to um, Boston because, you know, I, I, I said to myself, I said, I've traveled many countries. And so I want to really explore the states when I get home. So I had a layover in Boston and I actually found an Airbnb experience with a, a, a former, um, she may be, she may still be a professor at Harvard. Her name was Diane Wong, I believe. And she was African, African-American and Korean, I believe. And so she offered a healing yoga workshop. And I was like, well, how ideal would that be? For me to do that before I go home after all of my service, it would be a wonderful way just to kind of transition back home. So I was planning to do all of those trips and then end it, you know, it would be my culminating um, experience. Well, um, on Sunday, August 5th, I was at my desk, um, a.k.a. <laughs> dining room table. And my one room rendezvous had a one room hut, but I did make it a home. I, I, I did. I did a, a Swazi edition makeover. It was beautiful. I'll share pictures to my hut on the website. So check it out at heycaregiver.com. But I was at my desk and um, I was I, I should have been working on my description of service. So at the end of our service, we have to write a report of what we've done, we, you know, what we've accomplished and and all of that. And I was working on it, but I got distracted and I, I, I really was excited about my trip. So I was like, oh, let me work on that. Let me plan my itinerary. And I was planning my itinerary for my two weeks in Ghana and looking at some excursions and experiences, all of that. And then I said to myself, I said, you know what? Let me call Fa. Fa is what I call my father. Fa is short for father. And so because he lives in LA, it was a 10 hour difference, time difference. And so it would be kind of tricky for us to always find a good time for us to talk. So I said, well, this is ideal. You know, this is an ideal time to call him. So it was, I guess it was almost 11 because it was like one o'clock his time. So I called him and I said, hey, Fa, what's up? And he was like, oh, nothing. I said, well, what you doing? He said, I'm talking to your Aunt Jean. Now, my Aunt Jean is my mother's oldest sister, oldest living sister. So I said, well, what are you talking to Aunt Jean about? You know, four, because I'm thinking it's August, it's nobody's birthday. What's going on, you know? And so I could hear... So my, I could hear my Aunt Jean and, and my father said to my Aunt Jean, she can hear you. And so my Aunt Jean said, tell her that Joan is on life support. And immediately I lost it, like lost it, like was rolling on my marble floor, just crying and crying and crying. And I screamed. I don't even know how long I was just going through. and you know, just letting it all out. But I know that when I got back to the phone, my dad said, I'm glad you got it out. And so I had to get myself together and I called Peace Corps to let them know what was going on. And so they asked me, the Peace Corps office was two and a half hours, a two and a half hour um commute from where I stayed in my rural community. And they asked me if I wanted to come to Peace Corps, you know, to Peace Corps. And we have a medical hut that, you know, they have food and, and shower and all of that. And typically that would be a nice thing. But, you know, I live 20 minutes away from the airport. My family, they were blessed. They had a car. And so I opted to stay with my family so that I could get myself together, get my things together. And I knew that my Babe and Mage, Babe is father in Saswati and Mage is mother in Saswati. And I knew that my Babe and Mage, Tabetsi, that they were, you know, that they would take me to the to the airport the next day. So I kept in touch with 
Peace Corps. But I called my family after that and they came over and they prayed with me and they cried with me. And all my mage kept saying was, I just pray that she sees her mother alive. I pray that she sees her mother alive. And um, I really thought that that's what I was going to to do, to come home to say my goodbyes. So as I mentioned, I lived 20 something minutes away from the airport and there were three flights to Joburg. So they had one in the morning, one in the afternoon, one in the evening. And so the flight out of Joburg was, and that's Johannesburg, Joburg is short for Johannesburg. The flight out of Johannesburg was at like 8 p.m. And so I didn't want to just sit at the airport all day. So I took the last flight out of Swaziland into Joburg, but they call it Swazitown. <laughs> so that flight was delayed. So when I arrived at Tambo, that's the name of the, the airport in Joburg, I got on the shuttle and there was a young lady and I call her my guardian angel. She got on the shuttle and I, I, this is, God told me to sit next to this, sit right next to the door. So there was a seat there and the young lady got on and she said, is anyone traveling to Atlanta? And I said, me. So once we arrived to the gate, she just, we just jumped out. She was like, follow me, follow me. And if you remember, I, I think I'm dating myself, but the OJ commercial uh, years ago when he was running through the airport, it was like that. Like we were just going, you know, and I'm just running and running. And so she's getting me through all the gates, just swiping her card and saying, hey, she has flight to catch. And we're going through all the gates. And it was just, I was just like, oh, my gosh. It was it was kind of like an out-of-body experience because it was just like happening. Everything was happening so fast. And so we're running and running. And then I lost my breath. Like, I'm like, wait, I'm fit. I walk five miles a day. And, and not even just by choice, but by force. But I did choose to exercise when I was there. So on top of having to walk and my exercise, I'm like, well, what is going on? What's going on? So she grabbed my laptop and she, because I had it in my hand and I was just like, oh my gosh, I had to catch my breath. So she says, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to get you in. I, you know, she went to my actual gate. She's like, I'm going to get you in. And so um, we got there. She, she, you know, told them what was going on. And I was sad because it was like, oh my gosh. And so um, sat down and then started thinking about what I was going to experience when I got home. Like, what was it? What, what am I, what am I, what am I coming home to? What is this? unknown? I don't know. When I got on the flight, I was bawling. When I say, I mean, like I was crying uncontrollably. And so people were looking at me and I laugh about it now because people were looking at me like, oh my God, please don't let her sit next to me because they probably thought I had a fear of flying. But I was seated between the two most, I'm sure the nicest men I could have been sandwiched uh, between. So once I got myself together and they allowed me to kind of get myself together. And, and, and like I say, I snickered to myself because... I was like, people, he, they may have thought the same thing, like, Lord, this lady don't want to fly, you know, that kind of thing. But the guy on the left of me, he was from Kenya and he was a nurse practitioner and he was going back to Minnesota. And the guy on the right of me was from Somalia and he did computer work, I believe. And he was on his way to Philadelphia, I believe. But I was talking to them and telling them what was going on. And the nurse practitioner, I was like, I couldn't believe I couldn't breathe. And I was just, you know, out of breath, you know, all that kind of stuff. He said that was the anxiety. That was all the buildup and which made sense. So had a wonderful um, flight with them. And when I arrived to Atlanta, I called my cousin just to let her know where I was and then um, flew from Atlanta back to Baltimore. And once I hit U.S. soil, caregiving became my life. So um, my cousin, um, Jenny, she 
you know, pick me up and then we get to Bayview, um, Johns Hopkins Bayview um, campus. And my mother is in neurocritical care, the neurocritical care unit. So we go, we get up there and I, in my mind, am thinking I am coming to say my goodbyes to my mother. And she's holding on until I get here just so we can say goodbye. And so I go in, she's intubated. She's really not responsive, not really doing much of anything. Um, and I'm just, you know, trying to process it all. Now, now mind you, my tenant had just moved out, but I didn't have a bed. I didn't have anything. So I stayed with my cousin Terrence for a while until I got my footing. It took me a while to get it all together because, you know, I wasn't prepared for any of this. But my friends and family really came through. My village is strong and they helped me get my things in order. I still had bags that I had traveled home with that needed to be unpacked. Bags that were sent here already that needed to be unpacked. My mother's house, um, making sure that everything was how it needed to be there because on August 5th, she had no idea that she would never be returning home. And um, it was a lot. It was a lot to deal with, a lot. It took a physical toll because there was a lot of work that needed to be done, a lot of sleep deprivation, um, a lot of navigating this whole healthcare system or sick care, if you will. And that's a whole nother podcast. But you know, I'm here today to talk about all of it and to really help with and vent in a way, but also to let folks know that they're not alone. Like what I went through, I'm sure there are others that can could relate to just everything. Um, as I said, my mom was intubated for 12 days. And so um, the day came where the intensive care doctor had to give us the worst scenario um, of what could happen if they remove the tube and, you know, she's not breathing on her own. If we wanted to have her reintubated and all of that, I was like, absolutely not in my mind. Um, quality of life to me is much more than quantity. And so if she needs a machine to help her live, that's not living in my eyes. So we removed the tube. My aunts were there and um, we, you know, I certainly was praying for the best. But, you know, I was I was open. I was open to whatever was to happen, because, again, I thought when I returned that I was coming to say proper goodbyes. And that was it. So over the course of time, she had gotten better. We actually, my cousin brought in an Alexa at that time, or Echo, at that time, I was so, I was not familiar with any of it. I didn't know how it worked. I was so like antiquated in my technology savviness that I didn't know what was going on. However, I learned, I'm a quick learner. And so I learned how to use the echo and talking to Alexa. And so we started to play music in, my, in, a, in a neurocritical care unit for her. So I researched music therapy and, and all these kinds of things. And so she um, was still just there. Um, I think she opened one eye like maybe 19 days later. I have to go back and look at all of the Karen Bridge updates because you know, the one thing about being a sudden caregiver and just being thrown into this role is that things happen and happen so quickly and happen continuously that you really don't get an opportunity to reflect, decompress. All of those things that I've learned are very important at this um, juncture of my life. However, at that time, I just did not know. I was a selfless individual. Like it was all about my mother, everything. So from the neurocritical care, she maybe a few a month in or so, she went to regular intern, uh, intensive care. I was in talks with the social worker, and the social worker was just letting me know what the options were and get trying to get her back into the community. And I did not know what that meant 
Like what? What, what does that mean? Get her into the community. So um, essentially that just means to get her out of the hospital and into a place, a facility, a home around other people. And so at that time, my mother had, well, she had Medicare and she also had secondary insurance. Well, um, when they were talking about releasing her, well, actually, they were going to release her prematurely. I remember I was actually at Macy's outlet and I was looking for a bed and I got a call, not from the social worker that I had been working with, but the assistant social worker. And she was like, we're going to discharge your mother today. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, no, you're not. Um, and she was talking about discharging her to a facility that's known to be bad. So it's not known for good service is actually horrible. And so I was just like, no. And, and at that time I had not researched any facilities because I, you know, I really wasn't aware of what needed to be done. So I called the social worker that I had been in contact with and I was like, Hey, and, and told her what was going on. So the next day I met her in her office and we went through a list of, um, potential, short-term rehab facilities. And most of them are also nursing homes. So they do have long-term care in these facilities. And so again, with the insurance that she had, the secondary insurance was the HMO. So they ha it had the network requirement. So not all facilities were in network. So the social worker gave me a list of all of the facilities that were within her, ne her network. And then I looked at the ones that were um, within our, uh, probably within a five mile radius from us. So, because I wanted to be close wherever we went. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to inspect all of these nursing homes. I'm going to visit them. I'm going to see what they're about. And then I will make a decision. So I went to the nursing homes. Of course, they look so good when you walk in, like the reception area, so warm and inviting. Many of them have beautiful courtyards and it looks great. And even I think when I went to one and they showed me the rehab room that, you know, where they're doing therapy and they had state of the art and it was just, it was great. And then when I walked, went to the room, they showed me where the, um, the floor, where the patients were, that was an immediate no. You could smell. It was, and, and this particular facility, they didn't have any private rooms. It was just terrible. The tra oh, it was awful. And I was like, okay, nope, not this one. I went to another one. One, it looked like Bates Motel from Psycho. And I was like, I cannot believe anybody would put a loved one in here. I wouldn't put a dog in there. But it was, oh, it was terrible. I went to so many that, you know, and that one didn't even look good when you when you walked in. Like, it was an immediate no. But I did meet with the admissions officer because I scheduled an appointment, right? So, I, you know, I, I hey, and I and I talked to her, and we were kind of, um, we were. I was very honest about how I felt about it and transparent, like how in the world, like, could you even work here trying to, you know, get patients in? And this is awful. So that was that. And then I went to one that was, well, we, we, we actually visited one that was, we really liked it, but it was, it was probably 15 miles away and it, you had to travel through back roads and, you know, it was almost wintertime, it was approaching wintertime. I was like, no, this wouldn't make sense for us to do this. And then we visited one that was five minutes away from my home. And most of the time when I say we, I'm referring to myself and my Aunt Betty. My Aunt Betty is my mother's youngest sister, and she was my sidekick throughout this whole process. And it just so happened when we were walking through um, on the floor, there was a nurse that I recognized. She was actually one of my church members. And so I talked to her. She was a nurse on the floor that my mother, well, the nurse on the floor that when I told her what my mother's um, condition was, whatever, she would probably be, have a room on her floor and she would probably be one of her patients. And so I opted to go with that nursing home. However, it was a lot to, um, it was, a, well, first of all, it was a lot to do in terms of going to visit and, you know, really see what everything is about in the nursing homes, but also really having to advocate and push back on when my mother's discharge date was going to be. 
This is something that happens, um, especially with Medicare. I believe, now don't quote me, but I believe they only you only have to have 48 hours notice of discharge. So, you know, again, I'm learning all these things. So we settled on this particular nursing home. And when we arrived, no one was expecting us. I mean, like no one was there to greet us in that way. Um, once we were in the room, the EMTs left to make sure she was settled in. The nurse came in. So the nurse was expecting us, but didn't know when. Well, let me say this. The nurse was expecting a patient. Didn't know when the patient was going to arrive. Didn't know anything. So she's running around like a chicken with her head cut off. And I'm just like, okay. I'm not really feeling with this, you know, what's going on here. So anyway, of course, I was like, okay, I'm not leaving my mother. And um, that was that. Like, I was like, I'll be staying the night. And the charge nurse came like in the evening and was like, um, you have to leave. Visiting hours are over. And I said, well, I'm not going home. I'm not leaving my mother here. And she said, well, you have to clear by the administrator, the administrator and the administrator is gone. I said, okay, well, I'll talk to him tomorrow morning and I will let him know that you informed me of the policy, but also I'm letting you know that I'm not leaving. I, I, I'll let him know to, to make sure that you're covered, you know, that I will explain to him that you were doing your job. However, I was not leaving. She said, well, we have a cot that, you know, we have for family members. And I said, okay, it's no problem. I'll get it tomorrow. I said, I'll just put these two chairs together and I will be fine. And so that was that, you know, and that was the beginning of me being um, my mother's roommate, to be quite honest. I did not leave that facility well, let me say this. Of course, I left to go home. I, of course, I left to, to um, you know, go home, shower, all those kinds of things. But I did not sleep in my bed for an entire month, at least. I would stay there. I got to know the staff. I got to know who was working, you know, at night, who was covering. I got to know who they were. Um, they got to know me. They got to know the, the my mother's niece. They got to know how I like to do things. I had bath wash for her. I would put her clothes out. I would make sure that everything was good. I would take her her clothes home. You know, I would make. I had a hamper in there so they could um, put her dirty clothes in there. I would take them home. I would wash them. Like they knew my routine. We made her room look like a home. We brought artwork in. We around the holidays, you know, we decorated, we had pictures, we had um, nice uh, smell goods. We had just all these things to make her feel comfortable. And again, make her feel, you know, just that, that dignity. I think dignity is huge when you're working with your loved one. I mean, like dignity is everything. And anyway, so even though we were there around the clock, the uh, care was still subpar in many ways. So can you imagine what kind of care other patients got? You know what I mean? For what that didn't have family members that were there advocating for them and, and that kind of thing. So she was there for shy of two. No, I think it was no, it was two months. And when you are doing short-term rehab, Medicare covers 100 days. So she was there for two months before she plateaued. Now, when you, when it's almost like the staff, like the therapist and the social worker, they're in communication with each other. And even though you have family care meetings, those kinds of things, they, they aren't privy to you. Like if your loved one is about to plateau and they already have plans to discharge them in two weeks. They don't give you that heads up. Again, you are only required 48 hours notice before you discharge. So because I was there all the time and I asked questions and I was advocating and I had a relationship with everybody from the therapist to the social worker, to the doctor, to the receptionist, like everybody, I was like, okay, well, what's going on? You know, so I knew I had two weeks, my house had not been modified and you know, it was just a lot that needed to be done within two weeks. Now, can you imagine two days? So anyway, I'm getting everything together. Now, mind you, 
there were just, um, at that time, she was a tube feeder. It was just a lot of care that uh, was required for her. And um, so I am, they do kind of like a training, quote unquote, if you will, on how to do tube feed, how to transfer, how to, you know, hoil it, all this kind of stuff. But it's like a day, like it's not extensive training. So all of the training that I've gotten in terms of taking care of my mother has definitely been OJT. So um, she was discharged in October. Uh, no, I'm sorry. She was discharged from the hospital in October. She was discharged from the nursing home in December. So she came home and um, she was only home for a couple of weeks before she got sick again. And we had to um, rush her to the hospital and they found that she had a blockage and needed to have a heart cath. Well, the hospital that she went to did not perform that through that procedure there. So they sent her to another, well, she was going to be sent to another hospital until the cardiologist who was going to do the procedure told me that he called and he was just like, it's risky. It's not worth it. She's a high risk. I, I don't even want to do that. And we'll treat it with medication. And I'm like, okay, you know, and of course, during all this time, I am prayed up. Like, so I really feel like, um, Whatever happens, it happens is out of my control. I pray. They say, when you pray, don't worry. If you're going to worry, don't pray. And so even though that part, I was good. It still was a lot going on at that time. Um, I just, you know, I was from the Peace Corps and I had to really figure out things as far as work and when I was going to return back to work and because they were still holding my job. And so it was just like, it was just a lot, just processing a lot, dealing with a lot, um, adjusting to all of it. So she's in the hospital and I said, you know what, let's have her when it's time for her to be discharged, let's have her discharged back to um, future care where she was before. That way she can get more therapy. Well, we did that. That was um, like late the latter part of December 2018. And she she had gotten sick there. Like she was couldn't hold anything down. She was vomiting. And so they did an x-ray and determined that she was constipated, but it kept going on. And I think it was like the first week of January and she had an appointment, a cardiology appointment that was um, scheduled. And when I went, you know, went to get her, well, we were going by private Ambo, but when I got to her room, she had vomited. And that's what that was, was going on with her um, when they had done the x-ray before. So I was just like, well, what's going on? I said, well, who is her tech? Because why is she laying up here with vomit on her? And so, um, you know, determine who the tech was. And then the doctor just so happened to be there. Now, this doctor, he would be, he had like, I, I don't know, he had bankers. He would come whenever he wanted to, bankers hours. So, like, he would be there at 9 p.m. Now, it was okay with me because I was there at 9 p.m. too. So I could always catch him because I was always there. But for the average family member, they're not there at 9 p.m., 10 p.m. But I would always talk to him and, and like I said, advocate for my mother. But it just so happened that he was there this day. And so I said, um, you know, what what's going on? You know, I said, she is vomiting. And he said, okay, well, you know, I wanted her to have, we don't, they didn't have the capability to do a CAT scan. And so he said, I'll send her out for a CAT scan. I sent her out for a CAT scan. And we, um, well, actually kind of rushed her to the hospital for a CAT scan to Union Memorial Hospital. And we get there and she's okay. She's alert and everything, but you could just hear the air in her bowels, like the walls of her bowels. And and it was a condition called pneumatosis. I had never heard of it before. And so it was almost like she was there all day. And then um, 
the ER doctor when it was time for him to, to go on, like his shift was done and he came in cause they had run all these tests and, you know, most of them came back good, but the last, right before he left, uh, you know, left, he came back in and looked as if he looked like he had seen a ghost. And I was like, well, what's going on? You know, what's going on? So he was saying, well, she'll need to have surgery. And so what needed to be done, he, they couldn't do at the hospital. So send her back to another hospital. And this is before I learned that hospice is really a process and not a place. But when we arrived to the hospital, um, they had her up on this floor, beautiful floors, like beautiful rooms, the be most beautiful rooms I had ever seen in a hospital. And so I'm thinking like, okay, maybe this is it. So we're in this beautiful room and it is what it is. So I informed them that I'll be staying and what had been going on through what we experienced throughout the course of the day. And so, you know, we're in there and then, um, when the tech came in like around three to do her vitals, her heart rate was off the chart. So they called in rapid response, rapid response team came and got her stabilized. And we went to another room that specialized with what was going on. And so at that point, it's just so much going on, so much to process. And once she was seen by a doctor um, the next day or so, they determined or they told us then that, you know, what was going on and what needed to be done. And their first recommendation was surgery. Now with surgery, in terms of recovery, the doctor explained that she would have a colostomy bag. It would be an uphill battle for recovery. And I shared that with her. And even though her her um, cognitive capacity, you know, she had a traumatic brain injury, she was still recovering. And, but I still felt like she could make some decisions on her own now that she was alert enough. So I said, Ma, they want to do surgery on your stomach and the recovery will be an uphill battle and you'll have a colostomy bag. And I said, do you want that? And she said, no. And so, hey, I said, okay, which was fine with me. Again, back to that quantity of life does not trump quality in my eyes. So I don't want her to suffer any more than she already was being bedridden. So during that time, you know, they informed us that she, she, um, would, she had days. So I, I called my pastor and asked him, I said, um, you know, I would love to have my mother's celebration of life services at church. And he was like, okay. And he was going to come see us and everything. And my cousin, who is also a member of the church, my mother's first cousin, he called my pastor as well and was just telling him what was going on and very sad because he and my mom were close. And so when my pastor finally got to see, got around to see us, like, Within the next few days, she was doing a lot better. Like they treated her with the medication. It worked. Dr. Farah ran into him. He was like, I'm not God. And so let God do what he's going to do. So the medicine worked. Um, she had been accepted to in-home, I'm sorry, inpatient hospice at that time. And so by then, you know, we were like, okay, we're putting this paperwork to the side because you're doing better. Um, again, a miracle. And so she stayed in the hospital, I believe, in recovery for like two to three weeks after that. And so her numbers were looking better, white blood cell count coming down, like everything was getting back to normal. And the infection was clearing up. So everything was, again, you know, just she was doing a lot better. And I'm like, okay. She is not ready to go. <laughs> so again, I was, you know, as I said, I was readjusting. I was doing so many things, just trying to continue to get settled. And one, I had to renew my license and we had a new process. And so I had to find all of this documentation and take with me to MBA. particular day, I got a phone call from the hospital. She was still in the hospital 
And I got a phone call from um, someone with this program called House Call. And they explained to me that my mother was eligible for this program. And it's a program where the doctors come to you. And the only caveat was that she would have to um, end her services with her current primary care physician. She would get a new one through the house call program. So I was like, oh, that sounds great. You know, so um, she was discharged in mid-February from the hospital and she came home. We got her enrolled into the house call program. And when we had our initial intake, um, you know, she explained to me what hospice was at that time. Like she would still be my mother's doctor, but under hospice care, she would get a full team. So with hospice care, they treat the whole patients unlike regular health care. So you'll have your nurse, your doctor, the chaplain, whatever your faith is, um, music therapy, art therapy, like all these things, these everybody is communicating on behalf of this one patient. And she also explained to me that everything is covered by hospice, not all incontinence supplies, but most and just the process. And then she asked me if I wanted her to be enrolled. And I said, sure. And this was February, um, mid-February again. Got her enrolled into the program and we, you know, had some ups and downs during her care, not necessarily with the service, but with her health. She had gotten so ill during this time, one time that they were going to admit her into the facility. But again, she turned around. My mother is a tough cookie. She is not ready. So come May of 2019, she graduated from hospice. When she graduated from hospice, because Medicare, they do um, a reassessment every 90 days and that determined that she was doing better <laughs> than she was initially. So they kicked off hospice. Now with that, we had to give back the geriatric chair like Medicare doesn't cover geriatric chairs. Um, with hospice, they provide an air mattress, things that Medicare um, don't cover. But she was getting better. So this is May 2019. Have a great relationship with the the, the, the house call staff. Um, it's just everything is working wonderfully. But it's been a lot, um, to say the least. So just now, I think 2018, 2019, they were arduous. You know, like it was a lot. And again, like me readjusting and and just everything about that, I actually resigned from my job and I had until May 2019 to make the decision of whether I would return back to work or not. And to be honest, I considered all factors um, as it pertained to my mother from a physical standpoint, emotional, mental, spiritual, financial standpoint, like all of these things. And it just didn't make sense for me to return to the workplace. Now, granted, I am grateful and it's a privilege for me to do so. Um, and um, we're here now. Now, I shared the story, the beginning of the story because it was so much, so many ebbs and flows, but where we are now, it's just incredible. I mean, she's still bedridden, but her cognitive ability has improved. I mean, leaps and bounds. We're able to watch TV together. We're able to laugh. You know, my mother did not laugh for nine months. And she is funny. Like she has a wonderful sense of humor. And so when she laughed for that first time after nine months, I was so elated and I felt like that was the beginning of, um, you know, I would say a full recovery. No, she's not who she was. She's not the mother that I left in 2016. She's not the mother that I visited in 2018, but she is the mother that I have now. It's, it's our new normal. And, and this is what I really want to get across. It took me to deal with all of that stuff and be selfless with her um, until like, I got an aha moment and realized 
that I was suffering. I was doing all these things that were counterproductive to a healthy life and lifestyle that, you know, I would really get frustrated a lot. I would get, I would be short a lot. Um, Just, it was a lot. It was a lot on me. I felt depressed at times. I felt it was a lot. And it wasn't until I said, girl, you need to take care of yourself. That things got better. I feel like things got better when I started to take care of myself and not in a selfish way. Understanding that taking care of myself allowed me to better care for my mother, which is that selfishness piece that I'll be talking about. It got a lot better. And of course, there were some medications like modifying some of her meds and doing certain things, incorporating massage therapy and um, aromatherapy. Uh, laughter, watching game shows, playing cards, allowing her to paint, like all of these things have helped her. And I believe that love more than anything has really helped her in her recovery. I hug and kiss her every day, all day. Sometimes she welcomes it, other times I get on her nerves. But just like I was called to my Peace Corps service, I was called to this assignment to be my mother's full-time soul caregiver. There's a quote that says, often his call is to follow in paths we would not have chosen. And that is indeed my story. I hope you enjoy this podcast and feel a sense of community as we travel this road together. This journey to selfless, this journey of selfless, this journey of love.